Hello there, wonderful people, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, with me tonight, Scott. Well, hello there. And as a, a continuation, I guess, of our last episode, in which we discussed a number of the works of Wesley Snipes, we are turning this compare and contrast episode into, well, a Blade episode, really. Yes. <laughs> Just going to carry on with what's probably Wesley Snipes' most famous role. In terms of box office, probably his most successful, certainly. Yeah. And certainly up until rewatching him for this, I would have said probably my favourite Wesley Snipes films. I think that sounds, from what we were discussing before recording, Scott, that's largely where you were. Uh, yes, and it also kind of redresses the balance of some of showing us some of the more action side of his uh, his output, which we yes, when it was a bit more quite dramatic. Um, what we did in our a previous episode, yes, yes. So, I guess the question remains, and it's hopefully what we'll discover by the end of this episode is whether there are still our favourite Wesley Snipes films, and indeed whether they're any good at all. So, without further ado, Scott is going to tell us about. Blade. Yes, yes, Blade. Uh, take a trip back in time with us to 1998, a strange and confusing time where films based on Marvel comics were not the all-consuming media behemoths they are today, but a force entirely absent from cinemas since 1986's disastrous Howard the Duck. Well, barring perhaps a few highly limited releases of some straight-to-video dreck like the Dolph Lundgren version of The Punisher. I always forget that Howard the Duck was a Marvel thing. Um, yes. It's not only ever vaguely aware of the film at all. Um, mm-hmm. Fortunately, yeah. I, I have never seen that um, because <laughs> yes. I, I'm not down with bestiality, which is what I believe that film's <laughs> largely about. It's, a, it's more of a subcurrent to it. I don't think it's explicitly <laughs> about that. <laughs> yes, but I, I'm sure that the success of the Batman films throughout the 90s started to pique interest in Marvel properties. But even Batman had cratered a year before with Batman and Robin, the Nadir's Nadir of adaptations. So it was a brave move, perhaps, for New Line to put money into another comic book adaptation. However, I suppose with Blade not being the obvious choice for Marvel's buffet of characters, I'd certainly never heard of him outside of the film franchise and haven't really, even now, I've never seen a Blade comic in my life. And vampires were still, at the time, the pop culture monster of choice from the likes of Buffy and uh, from Dust Till Dawn. So perhaps it's not quite as risky a bet as it first seemed. Yeah, so before you go on, I was just thinking, you mentioned the vampire thing. Like, interview with the vampires like 1994 or something, isn't it? So it's, yeah. there is a whole sh- um, slate of them from the... Um, all through the 90s, I guess, really, if you include Buffy. Yeah, um, they perhaps didn't have quite the same sort of dominance that zombies have had of late um, and uh, did back in the 70s, I suppose. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah they, they were the... I think they were the mythological monster of the of the era, yes. Um, financially, at least, Blade paid off for New Line, so while perhaps the subsequent appearance of Fox's X-Men and Spider-Man deservedly get the credit for Marvel Cinema Revival, or, well, Vival, as they weren't exactly a force before then, it's really Blade that's a starting point for it all. 
Uh, but enough of the scene setting. What is Anblade and what it to do, I hear you ask? Well, fear not, my grammatically challenged chum. Let your old pals fill you in. Uh, Wesley Snipes, of course, dons the sunglasses and leather trench coat of the titular day-walking half-human, half-vampire vampire hunter. He has all the strengths of a vampire. Uh, speed, strength, cool tattoos, nice teeth, uh, but with none of their weaknesses. Sunlight, garlic, silver, apart from the thirst for blood. This is controlled by a serum that his grizzled vampire hunting buddy Chris Christopherson's Whistler produces. Although, uh, we're told that he's building up a resistance to it. Um, a Chekhov gun that the franchise never quite gets round to triggering. Vampires live all around us, but keep themselves to the shadows, the ruling families keeping a truce of sorts with the human power brokers, much to Blade's distaste. However, young upstart Deacon Frost, played, unfortunately for us, by Stephen Dorff, makes a move to bring unbalance to the force, decreeing that vampires should openly take their place at the top of the food chain. His plan for this is to fulfil a prophecy from the Vampire Bible, which I think was called the Book of Eli, uh, which we'll see. <laughs> oh, well, there's, Scott, there's a Scott, deep cut reference. Scott, you're a terrible, terrible person you are to bring <laughs> that film up. <laughs> Someone's got Ooh. to like it. <laughs> yes, so this will see the unleashing Ooh. of the Blood God on an unsuspecting world. For this, he'll need the Daywalker's blood, to which Blade is less than agreeable, hence all of this conflict and unpleasantness. Now, I don't think. A lot more detail of the plot is needed. It's very much not the film's strong suit, uh, other than to perhaps mention Nabush Wright's haematologist Karen Jensen, who's saved early on from being turned into a vampire and who goes on to give us an exposition sounding board. And yet, somehow, even with this minimal involvement in the plot, a bigger role than most women in action cinema of the era. It's a low bar. Now, Blade wasn't warmly embraced by critics at the time, and I, I suppose I can see why. There's a number of things that could use a rethink. Uh, while this is a top-tier Stephen Dorff performance, that essentially means serviceable, so there's room for some improvement there. Uh, more critically, while we're a few years and a number of millions of dollars away from the Matrix's redefinitions at the point, the standard for CG in film was significantly higher than Blade was able to muster. <laughs> now, some of it's just, uh, just conventionally dated, such as that section around the kind of sub train fight but the effects work in the final battle is ropier than a rope shop stockroom and given that it was i believe a reshoot from a poorly received entirely different cg set piece i'm sure everyone did the best they could with the time and the money available to them unfortunately it is not great <laughs> that's a sour note to end on because well the rest is spiffing Plaudits, of course, go to Snipes, who expertly traverses the very thin tightrope, uh, very thin tightrope, indeed, of a cool, over-the-top, slightly camp badass, over which a giant abyss of extreme ridiculousness awaits. And if you look closely down there, you can just see Vin Diesel's Riddick waving back up at you. Just as key to the beast as Christopherson's grizzled veteran, and the rapport the two slide into very early on sells their backstory unusually well for this sort of thing. Pleasingly, he gets as many cutting and funny lines as Snipe does, and it's a joy to watch them bounce off each other. Uh, one thing we perhaps didn't cover all that much in the Snipes episode is his action credentials, particularly the more martial arts side of things. Well, he is one crisp Mother Hubbard, particularly with those high kicks that I think he does better than anyone else in Western cinema. His physicality and poise sells some, let's be honest, silly action and makes it very fun to watch. Kudos, I suppose, then, to director Stephen Norrington and or his fight choreographers for delivering on a crucial plank of the film. 
Uh, I suppose we should mention in passing, given what I've been saying in the intro to this, that the year before this in 97, New Line also released Spawn, another comic book adaptation which does have a certain similar grim darkian aesthetics to it, but it is, however, a joyless dumpster fire of a film. So let's just all go back to pretending that it didn't exist for the good of our health. Uh, yes, so I'm gratified to find that time hasn't really diminished my enjoyment of Blade, and I still find it to be top-tier action entertainment, albeit one that's bettered by the sequel. Yes, the CG work does light it down quite badly, but you can probably give it a pass for that just because it's so much fun in the rest of it, and Snipes' charisma goes an awfully long way to patching up a lot of those holes. There's some really nice little interplay between him and Christopherson, as I say. Uh, just, I think uh, one of the first signs you see of it is where he gives him the um, that ultraviolet lamp that he's been working on, and he says, it's still heavy. It's like, but you're so big. <laughs> There's lots of little, nice little banter in a play that makes you kind of buy that these people have been together for as long as they've been saying they have a yeah. 30 years. And so that, that all really uh, sells it quite well. So yes, still enjoyed it. Certainly not perfect. Um, yeah, as I say, CG is a huge uh, letdown, but most of the rest of it and most of the other action scenes are kind of practical enough that they kind of can just about get away with it, I think. Yeah, for work wanted to talk about this. Um, I hate you for mentioning that film you did mention, which I'm not going to do again. But <laughs> you mentioned um, Spawn, which I have in fact never seen, and mm-hmm. for basically the entire time that I'm aware, been aware of his existence, I have confused it in my head with Steel Shack, <laughs> which I've also not seen. But anytime people um, mention Spawn, oh, it's that Shack film, isn't it? And it's not, <laughs> yes. but it may as well be. For, <laughs> it's, it's the one where Shack's a genie, right? <laughs> That's the new Aladdin film, no? Yes. <laughs> uh, there'd have been a bit of casting. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm largely on board with what you're saying there, Scott. I, I find that this is perhaps even more enjoyable than I remember finding out. Um, I remember finding that there was more of a gulf between the second and first film. Um, and this watch, I, I thought mm-hmm. they were much closer together. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, it's a spoilers perhaps, but I think the second one does sort of edge it out. But I've always uh, thought that Blade is really only marred by the sort of CG uh, catastrophes at the end of it. And the rest of it I really like. And I don't even mind Stephen Dorff so much in this. And thinking back, there aren't all that many Stephen Dorff films I've seen. No. <laughs> and this, he, he's not great, but he's not awful either. Um, yeah, he does the yeah. job. Um, and... It's just, yeah, it's fun. Wesley Snipes is kind of camp in it, kind of cheesy, uh, and sometimes, and I'm not sure if it's him or the direction, kind of goes down a bit too hard on the whole gruff badass thing. It's like, yeah. it's just a bit too far, but there are, like the moments you mentioned between him and the whistle, there, there, there's so much else to balance it out yeah. that it's not that much of an He's thoroughly entertaining throughout. Yeah. And... Yeah, there's it's, it's just a really entertaining action film, and it's an uh, it's an R-rated, violent, bloody comic book movie. Well, before Deadpool tried to claim that it was the one that did that. Yeah, yeah. Screw you, Deadpool, <laughs> and Ryan Reynolds. Though we'll come to that. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry to put a spoiler alert in there after. <laughs> yeah, the problems are partly with the CGI. Now I have seen now and then people say things like, oh the CGI aged really badly. No? No, no. It was bad awful at the time, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It was it was awful at the time. I didn't watch Blade in nineteen ninety and go, Well <laughs> That's convincing. Yes. See how those um vampires <laughs> apparently have cartoon skeletons inside of them. <laughs> yes. Oh I'm totally buying that. 
<laughs> that's probably what happened, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but there's some of the effects towards the start that aren't so bad. There's when the vampires just sort of get turned to kind of glowing embers and stuff, yeah, that kind that's of works pretty yeah. well. Yeah. When they try to make them more just like like a step in between of just becoming a skeleton, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, you look like you're made of clay. Yeah. Or a cartoon. Um, it's, it's, so. it's all about Harry Housen at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit. Um, the effects were always terrible, so that kind of makes that easier to rewatch because I already knew they were terrible. You know, it yeah. wasn't like I'm going to go back, oh, oh no, these, I, I don't remember these looking like that. No, yeah, they, you're prepared look, for it, yeah. I remembered. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's quite pleasant too. It's a superhero film that isn't an origin story. Yeah. I mean, you do get some bits of, of backstory because you have to, because otherwise, who would you know? You wouldn't know who this guy was. But it's not, oh, here's how he came to be and showed him fighting his way up and becoming the person. No, it's like, he's Blade. Yeah. Excellent. I like that because um, I think this predates all of those terrible, that terrible trend of having to have an origin story for everything. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Spider Man, seven or eight of them within a decade, I think. Yes. <laughs> I like the editing too. There's. You mentioned Wesley Snipes' martial arts skills, which I mentioned um, in our last episode, although the films we covered didn't have much opportunity for him to... Yeah. Show. Obviously, he's like a fifth-degree black belt in karate. He's done capoeira and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and clearly, you can pull that off. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's maybe not quite a JCVD, but he's probably not far off of it, you know, in sort of the fluidity. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have anything quite as impressive as JCVD's trademark jumping roundhouse kick or anything like that, you know. But yeah, although I don't know what that um, I don't know what you'd call it uh, in WWF days. It was a shuffle sidekick, um, the kind of super kick thing he does. Um, that's that's really crisp. That's a uh, I like that. That's a uh, that's as much of a, a trademark as he. I, I just would like to see him super kick more people through windows. <laughs> that's uh, good. Well, I, you can say that about almost any film, Scott. Most films are improved by someone getting super kicked out of the window, yes, that's true. Yeah, I mean, if there's some one fault with Citizen Kane. Hmm. Yeah, that, <laughs> no one suplexed through a table either, it's terrible. Yeah. I don't know, it's the, the ridiculous praise that's heaped on that film, people just don't know <laughs> what we're talking about. Number of super kicks, zero. <laughs> no stars. <laughs> yeah, so it's, the editing allows them to actually show that, it's not mm-hmm. just like, hugely massively chopped up and like closely cropped either you know yeah there's enough editing to keep a good rhythm to, to stop it feeling too static mm-hmm. but there are enough wide shots in there to allow you to actually see the action the choreography that's happening um and snipes skill and skill of the people he's fighting too in some cases yeah. so i mean it's all it's all pretty good the, again the big downside is the dodgy cgi as i said it was always dodgy. Yeah, it's not yeah. such a problem. The only thing I don't like minor niggles. What I did notice is it's something I've actually become more sensitive to. Maybe even in just the last year, and why I'm not sure, but I'm kind of getting fed up of over the top foley work. I just find it artless now, whereas it right. used to bother me. Um, so maybe as I'm thinking about it more, it's perhaps it, and. I mean, there's sort of the cliched ones of, for some reason, every film, when you turn lights on, they make a big clunking sound, because that's exactly how lights sound. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's not even, it's, that, it's not that stuff, it's more just unnecessary folly. An example recently is 
the the Audi that Robert Downey Jr. is driving in Avengers Endgame, which has big roaring noises. Now, yeah, but it's an electric car. <laughs> and even if you didn't know that, there was lot, there was a massive advert before the film started for that particular electric car. <laughs> What's quite nice about electric cars is they don't make an awful lot of noise. Um, but it's like, oh no, people expect a, a car to make a roaring noise. We have to put that in. So. Yeah, I'm becoming more sensitive to that of late. All of which is leading up to the fact that there's a wee bit of that here, not as bad as some films, but it's just not every movement everybody makes every time has to make sound. And in this film, it seems to be suggesting somehow that the vampire's teeth make noises, <laughs> uh, which just seems a strange thing to me. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is really is the most minor thing. Is it's just this is the first opportunity I've really had to sort of express it because I forgot to do it during our Avengers talk. <laughs> And a weird incesty moment with his mother. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of creepy. Why is that in there? And fortunately brief, but odd. Yeah. I don't know, it kind of gets away with that because I think it's trying to sell the kind of otherworldliness of vampires and all about how yeah. our, our, our I can see what they were going for, but I mean, it is obviously creepy, but that's sort of the point of the scene, I suppose. Uh, that's kind of why it was written in there, I would guess, to, to try and give you a kind of weirded out moment. Now, you can, you can argue it doesn't really belong in there. <laughs> I'd, I'd, be, I'd, I'd be open to accepting those arguments, but I can kind of see what it's going for. It does kind of work, but yeah, it's a bit squeamish in a, a film that is not otherwise geared up to deliver that moment to you, yes. It's, um, we've already mentioned one creepy Leah Thompson film. It's not quite as bad as, for instance, Back to the Future. Yeah. Um, in which she doesn't get it on with a duck, I believe. Um, it's not, it's not <laughs> any cut I've ever seen of Back to the Future. Um, but it's not quite as um, squeamish as that, at least almost is. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just a, it, it's a bit odd. Um, yeah. And I wonder why it's in there. Is that like, it feels like maybe it was done by the actors or maybe they forgot what the relationship was while they were shooting that scene yeah. it's like oh I'm a, I'm a vampire and here's my victim I'm going to kind of do this and like forgetting that oh wait no I'm a vampire but I'm also his mother yeah. so I wonder if that's kind of got lost somewhere in the shuffle of like forgetting what they were doing uh, yeah yeah. so the only this, this, <laughs> the most specific to me thing you can possibly imagine Scott but the only other issue I have with this is that the person that uh, Tracy Lords takes to the bloodbath rave. Oh, like the, the goon at the start, yeah. Who looks pretty much exactly like a young Dennis Quaid. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't die, which I find deeply dissatisfying for reasons <laughs> I've discussed many times. <laughs> so that, you're not going to get a more me reference than that. <laughs> yes. Uh, otherwise, a thoroughly entertaining film. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, it stands up pretty well. Yeah, I think it does. Um I think what stands out, I think, on this rewatch is that I cannot imagine anyone other than Wesley Snipes being in this role. Um, no. Apparently, he had been trying to get a Black Panther film off the ground um, in this yeah, time. I can see, I can see him which, in that role as well, actually. Yeah, so that would work, and this would be uh, the one that actually he was actually able to get to, and perhaps not quite a second choice. But um, yeah, again, he just seems to be. He seems like someone who really wants to do this role and do it to the, have the most fun he can with it and make it the best film that he can, which is something that we've perhaps discussed in a few Marvel films where some actors are perhaps not quite so engaged with the, the material. Yes. But um, yeah, I think his love for the character that he's doing 
really reflects in his performance, and that really does help make a, a more enjoyable experience for for something that is. Let's let's be honest, it's a, it is a very silly film, but it's a really silly and enjoyable film, and it's enjoyable because everyone kind of knows what they're getting into, and yeah. it's made with love, and that really shows through, and um, it's delivered a really good action film. He'd apparently wanted, I think. Quoted in 2014, I think it's like wanted to revisit Blade, and yeah, I can kind of see that working because Logan worked so well. But at the same point, it's hard to not think that if they went to visit the, the aging Blade now, it would basically just be Logan, yeah, yeah, because they're like very similar sort of abilities too, and doing kind of similar things, yes, uh, the, the healing and the um, regeneration and all that stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, the ship may have sailed, yeah, yeah, it's a pity because it, there's something interesting to explore there. But that's well ahead of us. Um, <laughs> yes. So I guess we'll move on. And after the perhaps unexpected success of Blade, Marvel saw that making movie adaptations of their properties could work. I wonder how that panned out in the end. <laughs> and in an entirely shocking and unprecedented move, ordered a sequel, Blade 2, to be released in 2002. Blade this time is in Prague, trying to locate Whistler who it turns out, is not dead, but being moved around from place to place by the vampires that took him in order to keep him from the Daywalker. And he is absolutely not bait that will absolutely not be significant later. (laughs) Shortly after rescuing Whistler, a couple of vampires dressed as ninjas break into Blade's base of operations and begin fighting as a prelude to presenting the offer of a truce. Weird way to go about it. Before having the absolute temerity to complain that Blade's people shot first. <laughs> Aye. These two vampires, Danny John Jules Assad and Leonard Varela's Anissa, take Blade, Whistler and Norman Reedus's Scud, the dumbest <laughs> name, uh, to meet the ancient vampire Damoskinos and his blood pack, a group of vampires trained to hunt, well, Blade. Amongst these are Ron Perlman's, for some reason, racist vampire, <laughs> the guy from The Fast and the Furious who's always angry but who isn't Michelle Rodriguez, Donnie Yen, and a ginger Scotsman. <laughs> the reason the truce has been offered is that a new threat has emerged, deadly to human and vampire alike. Jared has to make do with windows. <laughs> Sorry, that pun works better when you know his <laughs> name, but... Uh, Played by 80s boy band member Luke and or Matt Goss. <laughs> I believe in John Oliver's single Olsen twin theory. To wit that there is only one of them just moving really fast between two positions <laughs> and have extended it to all twins. <laughs> this Nomak, who, depending on how you interpret the exposition, may only be three days old. Yeah. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but we'll brush over that for now is one of a new strain of vampire called a reaper who feeds on vampires as well as humans and who leaves his victims as zombies because writer David S. Goyer got bored with vampires and had to add zombies too within one single film. (laughs) Blade agrees to team up with the Blood Pack who absolutely will not betray him and (laughs) you will of course be shocked and appalled when they absolutely do betray him. (laughs) And indeed, the scene is set for some snappy action scenes, fun barbs, nifty weapons and questionable physics, and a fate for Blade that's not exactly the same as the first film, but may as well be. (laughs) Again written by David S. Goyer, Blade 2 is helmed by then-little-known cult director Guillermo del Toro, who would use this film's success as a springboard into making Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth. 
as you might expect from the Mexican. The film's pretty stylish. Though the source material and the fact that it's a sequel limits his scope for putting too much of his personal stamp on it. That said, he oversaw some striking practical effects and animatronics for the Reapers, which still hold up pretty well today. Unlike the handful of CGI sequences that mm. don't hold up today. Yeah, those digital actors, yeah. no. <laughs> no thanks. Don't hold up today largely because they didn't hold up then. Yeah. Um, looking more than a little like, well, cartoons, I can, I'm afraid. Particularly, uh, for finish, that scene in front of the floodlights. Yeah. Ropey at the time. It looks mm. ropey now. It's not good. Yeah, no, not good. It, it seemed to fall squarely in that time period when CGI was become more prevalent, more affordable, but people hadn't quite nailed motion yet. Yeah. So it doesn't look like a human moving. It's not natural. I mean, you still get that problem today sometimes, but very much that period where using it was more common, but nobody really got movement and weight properly done. Yeah, the, the inverse kinematics have not been quite worked out for, for it yes. when they start. They, they can almost get away with it when they're just doing normal stuff, but as soon as they start trying to have the kind of more exaggerated stuff that it's kind of employed for, with these, I think they were called digital stuntmen at the time uh, when they were having these uh, the, these fights, uh, it, it does not look convincing. They just haven't quite nailed how joints move, and it just looks a bit... It looks a bit video gamey. Um, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, um, yeah, it's not the best. It, it didn't ruin the film for me. It's, it's an obvious uh, flaw for it. And I think one that you could arguably say does age worse than the effects in Blade 1 because these kind of were at least trying to be cutting edge and sophisticated rather than at the, at the time of creation rather than just what, the, what they were able to do in the time that they had. Yeah. Uh, but they kind of wholly dug themselves for in Blade 1, so perhaps less forgivable, but uh, it, it, it doesn't ruin it that much for me. There aren't very many of them. I think that's the key. Yeah, yeah. There's a handful of fairly short scenes apart from that. Apart from the extended fight at the beginning, there's, there's not much for the rest of the films. Yeah, Once yeah. you get past that, you don't have to worry about it too much. Yeah. Musically, it is of a piece with Blade and very much a piece of its time. The soundtracks of Blade and Blade 2 joining the likes of The Matrix in defining a very specific period of the soundtrack of the late 90s to early 2000s in film. But that said, it does happen to be one of my favourite film soundtracks, <laughs> so that's fine by me. Yes. Peter Amundsen's editing is perhaps a little choppier and more hyperkinetic than Paul Rebell's in Blade, but it's fortunately not yet approaching the Jeepus, would you please keep the damn thing still so I can see what's happening <laughs> frustration of the ADHD afflicted, the born supremacy in his ilk, yeah. and allows a fair bit of scope for Snipes to show off his moves. Again, like the first film. Talking of Snipes, he's still playing the gruff hero here, but he's as watchable as ever, and the goofy moments are turned away down while keeping, or perhaps even increasing, the snark, meaning <laughs> that the character's more entertaining. Uh, once again, Chris Christopherson is a great foil. Ron Perlman's fun, and the mm. Goss twin does about <laughs> as good a job as expected. On this most recent viewing, though, the big disappointment was Thomas Kretschmann's Damaskinas, who doesn't really do a lot. No. But to be fair, it was always going to be a letdown after years and years of experiencing the clip of a wonderfully delighted Guillermo del Toro laughing heartily and self-deprecatingly at the screen <laughs> test for his original intention of Damaskinos. The film, though, remains a very entertaining action movie. Ridiculously behaired Michael Bolton vampire out of ten. <laughs> yeah, um, just... 
if you've not seen the Blade deleted scenes with the director's commentary on, you can find most of them on YouTube, um, and it's well worth doing so because almost every other deleted scene that I've ever watched will have the director saying, I really like this scene, but I had to cut it for pacing reasons or time constraints. Gaiucci um, stuff's particularly bad for that. Yes, every, every single scene. Oh, I really loved the scene. Don't know why I cut it. Oh, yeah, it was too long. And that seems to be the usual thing because you don't, I suppose, if you're a director, you don't really want to either admit you've made a stupid mistake or <laughs> criticise anything that's going on in it. But Del Toro is more than happy enough to say, This is the worst scene I've ever created. And this is the stupidest looking character I've ever made. It's, it's, it's a joy, it's a delight to watch to someone being honest for a change. Yeah. That's a. It's one of those frustrations I find is like I, I, I really, really, honestly wish that I liked Guillermo del Toro's, Guillermo del Toro's films so much more than I do. Cause yeah. I really like him. Yeah. I, I think he's a great guy, and then when he can, he's look at how terrible his original incarnation of this ancient vampire was with the straggly hair, and he goes, ah, "Look at that, fecker." Um, <laughs> It's it's fantastic. Yeah, the honesty is really nice, and the fact that he's been self-deprecating and stuff. It's it's nice. Yeah, uh, it, Del Toro's done many films that I can appreciate the craft of, but I've, for the most part, I've just not really liked them all that much. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's strange to say that this trash is my favourite Del Toro <laughs> film. Um, it, it's just a hell of a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I would say much more than I'd be saying in the first one, but yeah, it's, it's basically just the Wesley Snipes show, and he's great in it. So yeah, what's to, what's not yeah. to like? I'm glad you said that about the favourite Guillermo Del Toro film, Scott, because I was while watching this, thinking, yeah, this probably is. Um, it's certainly the most fun of his films. Yeah, um, you could maybe argue something of his earlier stuff might have more depth or art to it, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, or I know a lot of people really love Pan's Labyrinth. Um, I can. I watched it and I, it's like, it's just another film that I really wanted to like and just yeah. couldn't. It's just, just couldn't quite connect with me there. But yeah. That's, I feel we mentioned that a while ago, but for me, Pan's Labyrinth is the only one that's challenging um, played to for me. But yeah. Pan's Labyrinth was a film that I didn't actually like the first time I saw it. I kind of, I almost had to work to like that film. Yeah. Whereas Blade 2 is like, yep, this is a hell of a lot of fun. And watching mm-hmm. it, uh, what now, 15 years later, yep, still a hell of a lot of fun. I, yeah. Well done, Mr. Del Toro. Um, and again, it's exactly what you're saying, Scott. Things like, hey, you look at Hellboy and uh, the scope of it and the imagination design is all fantastic. The film is like, meh. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas this one, there's a bit less of his imagination in it for the reasons I mentioned, but it mm-hmm. just seems to be so much more entertaining. Yeah, uh, you, you've mentioned the only thing that cropped up in rewatching this that, that stuck out to me as a, a kind of niggle with the um, the stunt people, uh, digital stunt people. Um, but the rest of this film, I still really love. Um, it's just a hell of a lot of fun. The little, the kind of back and forths between uh, Del Toro and um, Ron Perlman add a little thing like. The way you can end an exchange with now you have an explosive device stuck in the back of your head as though it's a perfectly natural <laughs> consequence of your actions that's led up to this point. Uh, all that that stuff kind of works really well. Um, yeah. A really early performance for uh, Norman Reedus, who will go on to better things, I suppose, in the Walking Dead franchise, but uh, perhaps one of the least successful additions. But even then, you, you still kind of warmed to him, I think, by most part, but more or less at the same time. I, I agree with Whistler, I was just starting to like this kid before he kind of turns at the end and uh, he gets his confidence and duly spectacular fashion so that's that's uh, that's good for me yes it's it's done a good job of um introducing a whole bunch of stuff but not really 
you know, in a way that we're going to play Trinity. It, this has way more characters than the first film did, but it kind of limits its scope to keeping the focus on the people who are, you're actually in any way invested in. Yeah. And it kind of manages, it even manages to make me feel a bit of sympathy for Danny John Jules. What's Danny John Jules doing it? Why is the cat from Red Dwarf in film? That kind of threw me a bit for a while. I'd kind of forgotten that Danny John Jules was in this film. Um, but uh, it's, it's just strange seeing a guy who I know very very well from his performance in the as the cat in red dwarf like as probably my favorite tv show of <laughs> certainly when i was growing up around this time as well um it's just odd seeing him in this kind of film and i can't think of him seeing it in any other major blockbuster i can think it's of. just occurred to me that maybe he just got cast because they knew he looked good in the sort of fang <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that, that might be it, actually. <laughs> uh, and the only other thing I can remember seeing Danny John Jolson is I got a bit part in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels as mm, the yeah. barman that's telling them about Rory Baker. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've never forgotten he was in this. Just, I always found it kind of odd. Yes. Uh, watching this film, though, I think, I think we found the... And maybe it's been said, actually. I don't follow it, so I don't know. But we found the origin of Death Stranding. Mm, yeah. Because Hideo Kojima's new game has Norman Reedus and Guillermo del Toro and babies and pouches, all of which are in this film, yes. together. <laughs> so, um, yeah, maybe this is the origin story of that um, new game that's yeah. coming out later this year. Yeah, I hope the game does turn out to be a Blade 2 sequel. That would be much better, <laughs> Actually, it's the last thing I'll mention in this is that I mean, the one other way that this improves over the, the first film, but as I said, on this rewatch, there's not so much between them, is that it does cut out the sort of slightly odd tonal moments in this where the film almost stops for Blade to do something ridiculous. Yeah. And the three in particular, it's like, it a weird fist pump. Yes, yes. Like a, a battering sort of thing that he stops almost to pose and smile with. That's an awesome scene, though. I was, I was gratified when you posted that on Twitter early because I'd, I'd screen captured the exact same thing moment because it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And it's quite clearly deliberate because it's timed the sort of stroboscopic light in the background. Yeah. And it's timed so that just as he's, his mouth reaches full smile, the mm. strobe f- comes on into that part of the room yeah. like it's a camera flash. <laughs> Um, from the action happening behind it's it's ludicrous if you enjoy your job you'll never work a day in your life (laughs) (laughs) so they're entertaining but they do they do sort of not fit so well in film because I said the film all stops to show them it's just like a a a momentary beat but it's it's so odd and then the third one is there's a bit where after killing I think I said that before he kills a vampire right after he's killed a bunch of them he takes his sword sort of half crouches down puts the tip of the sword on the ground and turns it really, really slowly just to make a perfect pose. Like that, that's so weird. Why is that in there? You know, you say that, but um, I, <laughs> I, I've lost count of the amount of times of absentmindedly because he's kind of drawn, I think it's something from samurai films, he's kind of drawn a little arc and it's like a, almost like a kind of line in the sand sort of thing. Yeah. And the amount of times I've absentmindedly kind of done that kind of same sort of pose just with my leg and foot just <laughs> things, just in, in sort of absent-minded uh, parody of this scene. Uh, uh, yes, I don't know. I, I'm God. I, I need to go back and watch them, but I'm sure that was in some like older samurai films. It's probably a reference to that. But maybe. Yeah. 
I would need to go back. But yes, I I don't mind it. I'm on board with these little stylistics, no matter what film it's in. So. <laughs> uh, now, you mentioned after I'd said about Death Stranding, there, Scott, that Death Stranding may be the sequel to Blade 2, um, which is good because there wasn't a sequel to Blade 2, so this episode nope. ends now. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for watching. Hit that like and subscribe button. Good. I'm glad we've got nothing yeah. more to talk about. Bye. All right, let's talk about Blade Trinity then. No! <laughs> yes. Uh, the no! Blade... <laughs> I protest! Yes. Uh, Blade Trinity is very much the point at which the wheels fall off, not just for this <laughs> franchise, but for Snipes' career in general. So as such, it's I'm not sure it's worth spending all that much time on Blade Trinity, but here we go, we'll try and keep this to minimum. Um, Snipes returns, of course, alongside Christofferson, but they're set up by those naughty vampires, with Blade killing a human familiar being caught on camera, sparking an FBI manhunt for him. Also, weirdly at this point, they make a point about him not trying to kill humans, despite that not being a problem in any of the other films. Uh, but consistency and logic were apparently not high on David Goyer's priorities for Trinity. Um, here he directs as well as writes. The other prong in the vampire's plan, here headed by Parker Posey's Danica Talos, uh, with WWF wrestler and French-Canadian aristocrat Hunter Hearst Helmsley in tow, is to resurrect Dominic Purcell's Dracula, or Drake, as we're calling him for a very good reason, maybe? Um, they managed to do this in short order, and Blade and Cole must stop them. Ah yes, the Cole part of that, uh, who busted Blade out of FBI jail earlier. Uh, Whistler has been quietly setting up other cells of vampire hunters, and here we have a new team to get acquainted with. However, as they are mostly fridged before they've had more than three lines each, let's restrict ourselves to Whistler's daughter Abigail, played by Jessica Biel, and ex-vampire Hannibal King, played by Ryan, <laughs> played by Ryan Reynolds. Uh, is right. <laughs> yes. And well, so it goes. And I suppose the general setup's not all that much worse than other films, but it's just spread much thinner across way too many characters in a way that uh, I just mentioned with uh, Blade 2, which does it a lot better. Here, Dracula's ability to shapeshift into other forms is seemingly only used to confuse the audience and not the characters in the films, which is a bit of a head scratcher. Uh, and in a film that's already struggling to find the time to give its villains much of an identity, it's a complication it can ill afford. The action here is much less interesting, in no small part because a lot of it is being handled by Jessica Biel and Ryan Reynolds, who are trying their best but just aren't as convincing as Snipes. However, Snipes was, for whatever reason, barely playing ball on set, only deigning to come on set for close-ups with his stand-in probably being on camera more than he is in this final cut, and that, apparently, meant that a lot of the action and trademark cutting barbs instead went to Ryan Reynolds, who here is playing essentially the alpha test version of Deadpool. Watching it this time, uh, I don't know, it was a strange kind of um, bifurcation because I, I recognised the lines that he was saying in some way ought to have been amusing me, but it just seems that when they come out of Ryan Reynolds' face, they are stripped <laughs> of all humour. And maybe maybe if he was in some kind of mask where I couldn't see that face, it would work. And no, just to say. <laughs> now, actually, when I went back and watched this, it's not a complete disaster uh, because when Snipes does show up, he does bring out bring with him flashes of why I liked all the other films. Um, in the main, the reason why I liked the other films was it has a lot of Wesley Snipes in it, <laughs> and the absence of this is pretty much the reason I don't like Blade Trinity and the fact that it just can't uh, sustain itself. 
Yeah, uh, the, the franchise in general just is basically a Wesley Snipes vehicle, and when Snipes is not at the, the wheel, it just drives over a cliff. Uh, <laughs> it is not the world's worst film, but it's so far below the last two in terms of fun and competence that I couldn't even recommend this to completionists. Uh, yeah, it's as I say, it's the difficulties on set is probably as, as much as anything why uh, Snipes' star started falling, and the uh, tax revelations a few years later probably <laughs> was no help with that, as, as going, going through jail tends not to be great for your career. Yeah, so it's a sad, not, not the exact end, but it was a, a premature end of the man's, uh, of the prime of his career, and it's a, a sad note to go out on, at least in that terms. I, I hope that um, in future he can pick up some, some more work. I've not seen it, but I, I see in um, from the credits at least he's started picking up some the odd bit roles in um, stuff like Chirac and the Spike Lee film and some other things so hopefully we can see a bit more of his dramatic side come to the fore but uh, yes in terms of a, a, an end to his action films and let's not count all of the sort of financially driven <laughs> uh, trash that he's been making of late um, this is just a, a sad end to a franchise that I was very fond of and this is in no way lives up to it um, mm. Not recommended at all. Yeah, I mean, I was um, protesting rather a lot before you introduced it, Scott, but I don't really feel that. It's more just, it's just really dull. I just yeah. said that there are considerably worse films. It's just This one's just boring. and uh, I, I was honestly struggling to keep my attention on it. It was my biggest problem. The, yeah. the other films I've watched were like, I can watch and I'll just get angry or filled with hate or other things or just tear it to parts, yeah. tear it to pieces, honestly. Yeah. I was largely for the whole film I kept thinking wait I'm confused about the movie so the cops knew internal affairs was setting them up yeah <laughs> um, which actually was my go-to for being bored by movie for years yes. I forgot about it <laughs> last night but uh, yes I just channeled good old Homer there and part of the problem is it's an action film that has not an awful lot of action for a lot of the part and it's most of an Replaced with exposition, exposition, and a bit more exposition. Yeah. None of which is interesting. <laughs> and uh, kind of slightly odd tone to it. I mean, the other two films are a bit camp, a bit cheesy, but they're not, aside from the moments of Blade doing a kind of silly pose or something I mentioned earlier, they're not goofy or cartoonish, whereas this is. Mm. Like, when he gets brought into this group that, you know, for some reason has Whistler's Daughter. Okay, um, that was worthwhile and necessary, but uh, gets brought into that and they're like, they basically feel like the Scooby gang. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the the bickering and almost comically inept vampires. It feels like <laughs> a completely different series in the first two. Yeah. And I really like Parker Posey. Not even she can really save that. It's a strange thing with her silly little vampire dog thing. Yeah. Reaper dog, I guess. Um, and that big, goofy-looking fella who's apparently a wrestler. Yeah, Triple H. Paul Levis, you, someone or other, but yes, uh, yeah, him. Scott, <laughs> stop. You're just saying words to me that have no meaning in my ears at all. <laughs> you tell me he's a wrestler, I'll believe you. Um but he's a big sort of goofy Yeah, Patton Oswald, guy. that was who it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, this big kind of goofy looking guy who can't act. To be him, I've seen worse, but who just like, he feels almost kind of pantomime or something. 
Yeah, he's, he's fit in this film at all. He's no the rock. He's he's following the same kind of role that um, was basically like the the was it the first film had that Donal Donal Rogue. Donald. Yeah, his his kind of character is that sort of archetype, but just sort of slightly ineptly done. Yeah. 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 And you know what? So if you were making a He-Man film again, and you wanted to <laughs> cast Ram Man, he'd be perfect for the role. He doesn't fit in Blade. Uh, yeah. So you've got that. Then you've got. Well, Ryan Reynolds, who is as Ryan Reynolds normally is, which is tiresome. Yes. <laughs> um, and if you put a mask on him while he's saying these things, you just have a tiresome person in a mask, because I do not like Deadpool, <laughs> particularly the second one, which is an appalling film. Uh, yeah, I don't get on with Ryan Reynolds. Yes. I just find him irritating and tiresome. Uh, yeah. Then, I don't know, again, it's a film with sort of lots of little bits that just add up to being really, really annoying. Like, for some reason, too, they, they mentioned this idea that they've got lots and lots of sleeper cells who are doing the things that Blade's doing. Okay, that could be interesting. He's one person. There are vampires. He can't do it all. Hmm. That's interesting. Then Blade asks a quite pertinent question. How are you funding this? Because you find out in the first film, he's funding his by robbing the vampires when he kills them. Yeah. And using their like watches to buy serum or to melt down for the silver and stuff that he needs. He goes, How are you funding this? And then Mr. Reynolds quips mm-hmm. that he's got a lot of rich boyfriends. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Oh, no, no, I'm joking. And it, Oh, so you're not going to answer the question. And it's... Unless I missed it, which is possible, because I was struggling to concentrate on this, but never brought up for the rest of the film so they, they think to ask the question but never bothered to answer it yeah that was weird <laughs> but I suppose the biggest problem of the film apart from you know it taking the time for some reason to show Jessica Biel filling up her iPod <laughs> that, that was um, that was well worth it is it's the villain so yeah for some reason he's called Drake and a bunch of other things as well as just being called Dracula and it's, I don't know, there's something potentially interesting there. Um, even if like it feels now, although obviously this comes well before, it feels a bit like X-Men Apocalypse at the start. Mm, yeah. Digging up the ancient god creature to help them and it not quite going to plan. There's something there, like, there's vampires all around the world and there's been some hints in the last two films that are kind of, I guess, competing clans or something like that, you might call it but that they would all be subservient to Dracula and that Dracula is a is like the real boogeyman even for vampires and an action comic book film maybe not the place to do it but there, there's some ideas there that you could maybe do something interesting that either like the vampires are really scared of him and it's sort of um, he's a real th- there in his thrall and that could be kind of interesting and then for some reason they just completely relegate him to a basically a secondary character yeah it's yeah. so strange. Yeah, um, I, I, I sort of hinted at that. Maybe didn't explain it all that well, but yeah, there's there's too many bad guys in it, and none of them are actually well defined enough for anything like for this film to succeed. And yeah, it really doesn't help himself by Dracula shape shifting at points. Like um, maybe it's because, like yourself, my attention was wandering quite a lot during this. But um, this is a film where they finally apparently kill Whistler, uh, but he comes back for some reason to kill off everyone in the uh, Scooby gang, for the most part. And I I was 
when I watched it through this time, I, I, I was kind of scratching my head as how did that happen and why did it happen? And then I, I was reading note when I was trying to put my notes together. Um, apparently that's supposed to be Dracula who has shapeshifted to do that for no reason because most of the people... What benefit would it would it be? He's not actually he's not like walking up to the gates and going hello, I am Whistler, and then stabbing people. He's sneaking in. You don't see you he, he silently infiltrates and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't actually reveal himself to anyone as Whistler. So why bother doing it other than to confuse people? I mean, th- th- maybe I missed that scene where he was transforming or something, but I I just didn't get it at all. It was like oh, I shouldn't need like outside sources to tell me what's going on in a film this dumb, you know what I mean? It's uh, just ineptly handled. <laughs> when Chris, Chris Christopherson appears at first, I thought, oh, he wasn't dead then. Mm. Um, but no, it's really obvious really quickly after that that it's Dracula because he changes into like, at least two other people mm-hmm. um, in that same sequence. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like, it's obviously him, but it's like, yeah, but, but why... There's um, no reason for it to happen. There's, why would yeah, he, do doesn't, it? he doesn't need to fool Ryan Reynolds? He's lying in bed with a big puncture wound in his chest. Yes. No, he's, <laughs> it's not like he needs to trick him in. And yeah, I, I don't. They don't seem to know what to do with that character, and so there's no reason for him to be there. Yeah. Uh, also, as well as, uh, but not go to watch it because I, I know <laughs> my propensity for nitpicking. But why? How does his shape shifting ability extend to clothing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it just does, right? It just yeah. does. Problem two is you're supposed it's it's Dracula, right? So you should be either beautiful or terrifying or, or some in some way kinda of like visually charismatic. And they got this really boring Barry Ferguson looking <laughs> morpho. Um who's just the most generic looking man I think I've ever seen. Um, yes. If maybe he looks like the standard male shepherd model from Mass Effect, I think. Yes, he does actually. Yes, but, um, he's just so he doesn't look in any way kind of like visually captivating, which you think a character like Dracula should be. Um, yes, and it doesn't help. It's like he's just. Um, I'm not sure I'd say a bad actor, but he's tremendously bland and dull. Yeah. He's apparently been stuff like Prison Break before. I, I looked up in IMDb. This is the one and only thing I have ever seen him in that I'm aware mm. of. Yeah. Um, he's like, it's like, here's um, dull, bland, ridiculously generic man as the most famous vampire of any story ever. Okay. <laughs> That's odd. And then you basically relegate him to secondary character for the rest of the film anyway. I, then, I thought, did they just have Dracula in there just so they could have a scene where he walks into a shop full of <laughs> Dracola and other Dracula things. Like That doesn't work. That only works if people were aware that he was real and then he sort of become a laughingstock. Nobody thought Jack- Dracula was real. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's a strange and confused film that um, yeah, isn't bad enough to get particularly angry about, but I just I, I can barely care about the rest of it in any way at all. Yeah, I... I... <laughs> I'm left wondering how much of this, because yeah, Snipes and Goyer apparently had a very big falling out in this set, and Snipes wanted him to be sacked as director and didn't get that wish. It'd be interesting to know how much of Goyer's scripts for the previous two films went through unaltered, or if Norrington and Del Toro changed bits of it. I know yeah. Del Toro did ch- chop and change a huge chunk of the last act of um, Blade 2, because he mentions that in some of the scenes. 
whether Goyer with a free reign just just needs someone to edit him a bit better. Because clearly, he did write the first two films, and they were good, but apparently writing and directing the third was a stretch too far for him. So, yeah, well, yeah. listen, apparently he is, um, has confessed himself that he's not good at writing dialogue and not good at writing character interaction. That's your job! <laughs> yeah, well, it seemed pretty significant for a screenwriter. Um, and the, in the first film, I think a lot of the scenes, like, you didn't really know how to start or end, so they were just, like, they talked to um, Wesley Snipes, and he came up with some idea, and they went, yeah, that seems good, let's go with that. <laughs> and I think that is sorely missing in Blade Trinity. Really given some really odd lines have made it in. There's a couple that Jessica Beale in particular has, um, which is, and she's talking about what happens, she says, when I came of age and I was born out of wedlock. Now, who talks <laughs> like that? Is she from Dracula's time as well? Yeah, bad. <laughs> Very bad. It's so strange. <sighs> yeah, right. So I guess that's that's our thoughts on the Blade films. Uh, the first two, fairly close in quality, both really decent uh, acting, uh, action flicks. Yeah, and then it ended, so that was good. Yeah, um, which yeah. is good. So they, they didn't ruin that big one to another one. Yeah. Um, so we've got a, a couple of bits of feedback on Twitter. So first of all, from Exploding Helicopter at Chopper Fireball, there are many films, uh, sorry, many things in Blade Trinity that disappoint, but Parker Posey is not one of them. Sadly for me, she kind of did disappoint me. I like her an awful lot. There's so many things I found her so entertaining in, and she's just. The best of a bad bunch here. Yeah. Oh yeah, but it's just the whole kind of goofy, incompetent vampire thing doesn't work. There are sort of incompetent vampires at the start, but they're just your typical henchmen are useless, you have to do the thing yourself. These people mm-hmm. were sort of higher than henchmen and not so great. Yeah. But yeah, still, I, I never mind really seeing Parker Posey. Uh, and also, Lee Mill Magician, Spade, Heart, Club, Diamond. <laughs> Important to get that fill in. Um, at the Lee Mill. Blade blew me away. I thought it was my favourite movie since Bloodsport until The Matrix came out soon after. I have a sophisticated palette. <laughs> Snipes was the perfect casting for the character. Uh, certainly I'd agree with that. It's, like you said, Scott, hard to see anybody else in that role now. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, I, I don't know who even you could recast this as. I'm sure someone in the late 90s would have been in a an alternative to that yeah which uh, perhaps says more about the state of um, representation of minorities <laughs> in Hollywood at that point rather than anything else but uh, yes uh, clearly an ideal role for uh, Snipes and yeah to be honest I more or less agree with your picks there Lee I, I'm on board with all three of those films so no shame in that no shame well, in that no, I, I would very much swap out Bloodsport for Kickboxer yeah, okay. Kickbox is a much better film, although it doesn't have the awesome moment where Jean-Claude Van Damme pretends he's blind. Yes. <laughs> That's a fantastic moment. It's a moment for the ages, that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, and finally, um, our good friend Blake, Perpetual Dumb Machine, at Blake writes, his comment on what did we think of um, Snipes' performance of Blade. It's very good. Curiously succinct for you, um, Blake, but yes, absolutely 100% agreed. Yes. <laughs> His portrayal of Blade is very good. <laughs> That's it then. There are two good Blade films, which is good because there are only two. <laughs> uh, 
and we recommend you to watch both of them. Yes. <laughs> and also, yes, um, as Scott mentioned earlier, very much check out, if you don't have the, the Blade 2 DVD, um, check out YouTube or somewhere like that. Um, it's not like that. There's basically YouTube. Yeah. Um, Daily Motion. Nice. Check it out in Vimeo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, check out the deleted scenes from Blade 2 and listen to uh, Guillermo del Toro because it's really quite fun. Yeah. And it's nice to hear a director being like that because whether they're actually so um, egotistical, think they're making no mistakes, or they don't want to be seen to be like that, which may be more reasonable. Yeah. Um, you don't often hear them giving like good reasons why they didn't like a thing. Oh, it's cut for pacing. It's like, no, this is really, really awful. And <laughs> it's very funny how awful it is. <laughs> if you want to get in contact with us, oh, you can do. And we make it quite easy by doing it on the internet, uh, which is what all the cool kids are doing nowadays. Mm-hmm. Easiest way, probably Twitter, at Fuds on Film on Twitter, or you can email us, podcast at com, or through our Facebook page, facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. And if you fancy leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you're getting a podcast we'd appreciate it we certainly won't tell you what rating to give us just you know honest would be good it's like feedback it's it's helpful that's it from us for tonight though I was Drew over there Scott was Scott yes goodbye it's not going to lie to you I am about this. but yeah, not about this yeah uh, yeah fairly well folks bye bye ta da